This is your host, Dr. Tommy Mitchell from the Mental Health and Wellness Show. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing founder and president of Dr. Lewis Nutrition, Dr. John E. Lewis, PhD. He has a passion for educating others about the value of nutrition, dietary supplementation, exercise, and health. And in particular, he studies and applies clinical nutrition for the benefits of humankind. Dr. Lewis is a past full-time and now voluntary associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. He is also a diplomat, faculty member, and advisor of the Medical Wellness Association. Dr. Lewis embodies the model of health he promotes to others by eating a whole foods, plant-based diet for over 26 years, taking certain key dietary supplements, and utilizing a rigorous daily exercise training program. With no further ado, I'd like to introduce our lovely guest. Thank you, Dr. Mitchell. That's very kind of you. I appreciate all the kind words. and My pleasure to be here with you and your listeners. I look forward to our conversation today. Yes, I appreciate you being here. And for the listeners, I can see, John, I know this is audio, you can't. And I just want to say, John, it appears you embody what you practice, right? That is very refreshing Absolutely. that you lead by example and you take care of your temple because we know that our body is here to serve us, but we have to feed it the right food. And food is medicine. And that's something that we've talked a lot about on this podcast. And even those who know me in person know that we use this expression. Is there anything you'd like the listeners to kind of hear from you so they can really have like a filter to understand you? Because like you... We all have our unique background, and I would like the listeners to really hear you from your own heart so that when we share this topic, which for some people might be a little uncomfortable, but they'll understand where you come from. Yes, I would love to. And in fact, I'd like to touch on something you just said about how I look. I feel like for those of us who are in the health and wellness industry, if we don't look a certain way, if we don't look like we're healthy, then how much face validity and credibility do we actually have? If, if I was giving a lecture at a conference or even just, you know, being here with you on this podcast and someone sees me and I'm 400 pounds and I look like I can't walk from, you know, here to across the street without falling over of a heart attack, who in the world would believe anything I had to say? Even if I was really intelligent about health and wellness, but I'm not practicing it, I'm a hypocrite. So yes. for me, that is so important. It, it really is. And, I, and I've said this, you know, like I said, I said it before. Um, if we don't look the part, or at least acknowledge that we're a work in progress, they're not going to listen to us. So physicians, right. healthcare providers, parents, whoever you have to, we have to lead by example, at least try our very best. And when we don't do quite right, acknowledge it and keep on moving forward. And I, That's like right. I said, I, I really appreciate you say that because I've seen, a, I've seen a lot of this, especially in the medical community. We go to conferences, Well, I did before COVID and before children. I used to go to those like where they wine and dine you. And sometimes you'll be like having a conference on diabetes and like you wouldn't even know diabetes existed by looking, you know what I mean? So, you know, so I'm just like, yeah, let's lead by example. Let's not be right. a person who's drinking a whole bunch of alcohol and eating a bunch of junk and hasn't seen an exercise since high school. Let's not be that person. Leading by example is important. Um, So John, what made you dedicate your career to this? Because you've to be where you are, you you know, you got your PhD, but tons of research we'll talk about. What brought you on this path? You didn't just wake up one day and be like, I'm going to be the plant guy. I'm going to talk about polysaccharides. What happened? <laughs> How did you get there? That's right. That's right. So I, I was one of these 
kids that was very fortunate in my early, very, very early life where I had my grandparents, my dad's parents taking care of me and my, my grandfather, bless this guy's heart, he had horrible rheumatoid arthritis where his fingers looked bent, you know, like just oh, from yeah. the curvature mm-hmm. of the RA, but yet this man still got out in the backyard and pitched baseball to me when I was, you know, two feet tall. And uh, and so I feel like that was kind of one of those moments that got me into sports and being athletic and playing basically anything with a ball other than soccer. And so that led me down a path of just, you know, loving to be physically active my whole life and then playing sports through high school, then getting into drug-free competitive bodybuilding in college. Uh, and, you know, just going down that road of, of physical fitness and physical activity being very important to me. At some point, I, I transitioned out of the um, kind of the, as we say in Miami, the muscle bro, like mm-hmm. you're a bro, you know, you're a weight training bro, you know, that kind of language that people in Miami uh, use at the gym. I mean, to me, it's kind of silly. It's a bit um, narcissistic and uh, not too serious. But I transitioned out of that in my 20s into really much more of a health focus, whereas I went from being all about physical performance. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if somebody wants to have, you know, more information about playing their sport and being more effective in their sport, I'm certainly happy to help someone like that. But I think that's a very small segment of society compared to all of the rest of us who need help with our health. And as you well know, our health is our wealth. So I I transitioned in my 20s from, again, being more of a physical performance person into more of a health performance person. And I'm still very physically active. I mean, bodybuilding, weight training, sprinting, those are the things that I do basically every day, but I'm doing it for health, not because I want to stand on a stage in a bikini and, you know, I would do all that for, you know, ego gratification and all these other things. I got out of that a long time ago. Although I will, I will have to admit, sometimes I hear the stage calling me occasionally, you know, like it'll say, John, where are you? Don't quit the day job. Come back. Come back. back. What happened to you? Where are you? Come back. I hear, you know what? Having that sense of appreciation for our bodies is not vanity. It's, it's respect. So that little voice says, hey, where are you, buddy? You know, if you, you know, if you indulge a little, no problem. But back to your story <laughs> about your grandpa, I had a great imagery of just seeing, you know, an older gentleman, despite his diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, still enjoying exercise and movement through time with his grandson, right? Because so many people, including healthcare professionals, we get in the thing, oh, you're you got a disease. You are not the disease, okay? You are so much more than that. And even if you do have something that that is somewhat out of your control, health does not mean you don't have illness. Health is maximizing what you have and with the right nutrition, with the right supplements, with the right support, being the best version of yourself. Like, that's what I believe. You can be healthy as a quadriplegic. You can be healthy as, like, abs of steel person. You can be healthy as an elderly person or a young person, right. health is more than just this little box, right? Absolutely. And, I couldn't have said it right? better. And to me, again, health is wealth. I mean, I know that's a cliche, but I don't, care, I don't care what home, home you have, what car you have, your jewelry, your clothing, you know, any other physical possession, you don't have your health, you're having, you know, you have issues that need to deal with. But I didn't really finish answering your question. I mean, the, the exercise and the activity was one thing that I started at a very young age, but as I got into my 20s, I I had already had several of my uh, elderly family members die of different chronic disease. And I really, I didn't quite appreciate 
at that moment when they died of either some form of heart disease or diabetes or cancer, what that meant. But growing up in the South and from being from Tennessee, I, you know, I grew up around these people who ate for taste, not for health, of course, as yeah. a typical That's diet. The South. Mm -hmm. And yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, I, it, it later dawned on me as I, especially as I got into graduate school and then again, you know, finished school and finished my training and then started working, <clears throat> how so crucial anything that we put into our mouths is. And that information that is attached to whatever that is, be it food or drink, uh, you know, whatever we're putting in our mouths and what that does to our cells and to our genes. And so I had I had had my own experiences as a child and as a, as an early teen of having like, for example, a lot of throat infection. I didn't know why, but then as I began really teaching myself way beyond anything actually I learned in school with all due respect to my professors, this was yeah. really more of my own sort of self-exploration and journey yeah. to, to take me down a path that was very different from what I actually learned in school. But it, it really, it was so powerful for me as I started learning so much about nutritional science, again, beyond what I had learned in school. And so I just, you know, it was just baby steps. I mean, it was just really kind of taking one little step about questioning, well, why do I drink milk every day? Or why do I eat cheese? Or why do I enjoy the taste of beef? Or, you know, things that we'll talk about, I guess, as part of this, you know, emphasis on a plant-based diet. But it really just led me to a place where I, I really, I began to understand that all the things that I had thought about food or, and even getting into bodybuilding where, you know, you're so obsessed with every little thing that you put into your mouth because you're measuring your calories and you're trying to be as lean as you can. But beyond all of that, it just, I arrived at my, probably about my late, say 28, 29, 30th year of life where I was like, man, I've got to, you know, I've got to do some different things and I've got to make changes because otherwise. Otherwise, I'm going to go down the same path that my uh, parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles did. And so I, I made significant changes. I went from eating a very typical Southern standard American diet. And obviously, I didn't just change all at once. I mean, this was, you know, a process that took time. But I ultimately made the choice to go vegan, plant-based, whatever you like to call it. And I did that. And as you mentioned, I, it's now my 26th year of doing that. So it's been uh, not quite my half of my life at this point, but it's been a big part of my life. And so I feel uh, like those kinds of changes were a significant, uh, I guess you could say a milestone. Let's call it a kind of a, a very broad milestone. Again, it's hard to kind of lump it into just one uh, component or compartment of my life. It's really spreading out over many years, but it ended up leading me. You know, it's kind of like they say that it's all about the journey, not the destination. Yes. But it led me down a road where I I've been for many years now and I and I enjoy talking to people about this although I I definitely have gone from being a little bit less evangelistic if you can say it that way you know I used to be much more of an evangelist about this stuff and I decided that after a while you know arguing with people is really not what I want to do I don't have any I have no time for drama arguments that life's too busy it is it as it is so I don't really like engaging people in conflict. I much prefer to be the kind of person who, who just kind of leads by example. And then when people come to me and ask for help or advice, I'm much more happy and willing to share it that way as opposed to one of these people out here kind of leading this plant-based crusade that I yeah. think those people are, are valuable. But for me, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just don't, I'm not the kind of personality type that seeks out 
confrontation and argument. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people when you lead that crusade. If, if you're leading a crusade where you're fighting against people's um, social and cultural norms about food, I think you're you're up there with close to abortion and lots of other oh, things yeah. that you know, get people very defensive food is as you know food is very defensive for people yes and having lived in the south before and traveled a lot like changing this you know this change you had is it's remarkable because shopping in the south is a whole lot different than when you're up north like just even right. going to the grocery store seeing the frozen food section it's like the frozen meal section it's not even frozen right. peas, frozen it's in some states it's shocking but not shocking it's easy like it's there's so much baked goods and you're looking to find some good looking vegetables or good looking fruit like right. it's it's different and it's important and it's right it's a cultural thing it really is very cultural very cold and it's ingrained when you talk about changing people's eating behaviors you're really challenging who they are as an individual it's yeah. fascinating to me to watch people i mean it's almost i guess you could argue on another hand that Food addiction is a worse problem than even alcoholism or drug addiction because people are so addicted to their food and they don't even realize it. I agree. And that addiction no? is more widespread. It's easier to point at, oh, that person's doing cocaine, that person's doing drugs, but do you know what you're eating in that flavored, colored food? Fruit Loops? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, and again, whatever. People don't even, People don't even associate it. They just think it's just normal. It's just a regular part of the day. They don't even think of how problematic that behavior is. Exactly. So, you know, in this podcast, I like to kind of go against the grain sometimes and really open people's eyes. Because people are listening to this podcast because they know that's what we do. So they're yeah. not all sensitive because they wouldn't be listening. They were tuned off long ago. So <laughs> I went to medical school and, you know, they taught me all of this much about nutrition. And, um, they, you know, as a primary care practitioner, you know, one of the first treatments we recommend our patients is lifestyle choices. Some of us are equipped to teach, some, many of us not, right? Just like you, it was really a journey of self-discovery and where I'm learning, but I'm not saying I'm an expert on this topic and that's why you are here. So if you had to dispel three myths about food, and it could be things that are taught commonly in many university classrooms and many medical school campuses, this is your chance to give the audience three. I'm just putting you on the spot here. Okay. Well, my, my absolute favorite one, of course, I can imagine what you're thinking is protein. Yes. Protein. I mean, I don't know, Dr. Mitchell, I can't tell you how many times people have asked me, yeah, but where do you get your protein? Like they think that this, you know, this molecule of protein is so special. It only comes from, from animal Pork tissue top. or meat. Pork right. Exactly. <laughs> Bacon. Bacon. Oh, yeah. That's a food group. You know that. That's a food group on its own. <laughs> exactly. So I have I have had to answer a million times, well, where do you get your protein? And, I, and so, you know, you can take that conversation in a hundred different directions. Yeah. One thing I'd like to ask people is, well, where do you think, unless she's turned into a cannibal, where do you think cows get their protein? Hmm, that's a hmm. good question. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what do you see if a, if a cow is living in her natural environment what is she doing she's out in the field somewhere grazing she's yeah. eating grass or other green things that's all she eats yeah so where in the world is this cow getting her protein green grass. plants plants polysaccharides wow. <laughs> plants 
Protein without question is my number one uh, uh, myth that, that people just, you know, again, it's very sad to say that, I mean, in my, you know, you mentioned how little education and nutrition you got in medical school. I can tell you um, from, I didn't go to kindergarten, but from first to 12th grade, I went to public schools. The only thing, the only two years I remember any type of nutrition education was in second grade. There was a poster of a cow. It was all it was was dairy industry propaganda. It had nothing to do with science. It was just, oh, you know, if you don't drink your milk, you're going to have no teeth and your hair will fall out and your bones will be brittle, basically something like that. And then I had a, a health class in my sophomore year of high school that we touched a little bit on in, in nutrition. But I bring up that point because that's my second myth. And I, my second myth is the idea of you can only get calcium by eating the, the breast fluid from a cow. And it's kind of, I use the same argument. I'm like, well, where in the world are the cows getting their calcium from? Because, you know, these cows are not just like some perfected creature by evolution or creation that, you know, they have all of this capacity to have these nutrients and vitamins and minerals in them. Like they have to get food too. They have to get food from the plant world in the environment where they're raised to be able to then produce meat or produce milk. So calcium is definitely number two. And in fact, I would say, you know, kind of 2B is that even the idea that you have to get all of this calcium, actually there is research that suggests that calcium, uh, or I should say osteopenia or osteoporosis is not entirely a disease of ca uh, calcium deficit. It's actually a disease of calcium balance, meaning that if you're eating too much protein all the time, which the typical American is, yeah. And he or she is actually cause, causing this constant balance between acidity and alkalinity where the, the bones actually have their calcium stripped off to help reduce the acidity in the body overall, whether it's in the blood or other body fluids. And so you're constantly at war with your bones, essentially, stripping that calcium off to help modify or to help modulate all this acidity in the body. And so actually, if you're eating too much protein, not only are you suffering the, the ultimate consequences of potentially having osteopenia or osteoporosis, but it's also due to this calcium balance phenomenon that's going on that really doesn't have a heck of a lot to do with how much calcium you intake, but it's more about how you how much you're sparing from the bones. So I find that to be a very fascinating conversation as well that uh, you know people typically typically don't understand. And then I would say in general the third myth is just this idea that I'm and I'm kind of sorry if my myths are a little bit overlapping, but it's the idea that we have to eat animals overall for health. Like there's no, no, I don't care if you're, you know, this carnivore craze is just uh -huh. so hot right now. To me, I just kind of, you know, scratch what little hair I have left on my head and wonder what in the world are these people thinking? Like, you know, just purely eating beef and eggs and no. cheese, that makes no sense. But those are obviously extremists, but even with all due respect to the keto and the paleo, crowd and even Atkins for many years ago, you know, this idea that we have to eat all of this animal tissue for health is just a myth. So I'm sorry if those are kind of overlapping myths, but between the protein, the calcium, and then the animal tissue, uh, you know, just all of this information that's been flooded in the mass media over, say, the last 20 or 30 years, at least since I've been at this, I find those in my own experience to be the three biggest myths. All right. I'm going to add a little, I'm going to stir the pot a little bit with that protein, calcium, mix okay please what, what is your thought on these like veggie burgers beyond you know all those brands i'm not going to mention the names like mm -hmm. sometimes right. i look at it and i'm just like are we doing more harm is this like like what's happening here like what are your thoughts on that 
Right. Yeah, that's a great point, especially with uh, the products that are overdoing the canola oil. I mean, clearly canola oil is probably one of the contributing factors to, you mentioned diabetes earlier uh, and obviously heart disease and cancer. So we've had this shift right in, in our omega-3 to omega-6 balance. And so definitely these seed oils are driving all of this omega-6 dominance in our diet. I mean, for that reason alone, I always encourage people to be careful about you know, reading labels. I mean, a lot of times people just, you know, they pick up a package and they don't even read what is in that package in terms of what they're going to eventually stick in their mouths. But, and then, you know, canola oil, I mean, in fairness, it's not just that. It could be corn oil. It could be cottonseed oil. Some of these other oils that are commonly utilized in our, uh, in our processed foods. So, I mean, I occasionally eat one of these veggie burgers. It's not a, a predominant source of my calories, but, you know, I occasionally enjoy these things. But I think if you, if you want to eat something like that, I mean, without going too much promotional, like something like a Dr. Prager, I mean, those are those are more of like a whole food type of veggie burger mm. where it's not loaded with seed oils. It's just, yeah. it's basically taking brown rice and black beans and, you know, carrots, mushrooms, whatever else, and then mashing all that stuff together and putting it into a, a patty that's, you know, kind of like a, a burger. Mm -hmm. But I agree with you. I mean, I think there's concern with, you know, how much of that stuff we're eating and then especially taking it one step further, genetic modification. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, you know, the, we have no idea what, uh, what we're doing for ourselves. It, I, that one lab-grown chicken lab, I, I just right. like, no, like, it's bad enough they mess with our bananas and, you know, our fresh fruits and vegetables, but wow. I, I don't know, no. you don't have to be a scientist to know that that just sounds dumb. Like that That's sounds right. dangerous on so many levels. That's right. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, it's just, you know, we, we just keep, I, I think we always put health uh, under the profit motive when it comes yes. to these kinds of decisions. And we don't have any data to suggest that the end result of eating these kinds of things are going to eventually result in, in health, let alone not causing, uh, you know, some type of additional disease, usually cancer related. But I mean, I agree with you. It's just incredible how little thought is going into this stuff in terms of the health impact. It's all about making money and, you know, what's the quick and dirtiest way we can feed the masses and it doesn't matter how much damage we eventually cause. And we're not even talking about the environmental effects of, oh, you, know, my this, goodness. Methane you know, this monoculture system yeah. that we have today where we're wiping out the soil. And, uh, and then we keep dumping all of these pesticides and, and fertilizers into what soil we have left. And then eventually, I mean, I've heard, I've heard a couple of, there's a guy from India, I forget his name, but he's basically touring around the world talking about soil. Mm. And he's one of these, uh, you know, Hindu, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't really know too yeah, much no about worries. religion, but mm -hmm. he's one of these Hindu yogi kinds of guys. And, yeah. And he's going around the world, you know, talking about soil and how if we don't start taking care of our soil in the next 50 years, maybe there won't even be enough soil available to even feed, you know, 10% of us, let alone 8 billion people. I mean, it's really kind of scary. That is scary. <clears throat> I have you think about this soil problem. Yeah, you're right. It's not something that comes to mind, like on top of my mind, but you're very right. Like, we, yeah, I mean, this it's, whole, it's a huge problem. It's huge. You know, there's only so much you can grow in water. <laughs> exactly. In school, we did beans. I think we got a bean. <laughs> so and some mold. I don't know. So, yeah, that is a big deal. And, you know, you speak about profits over health. I couldn't agree more. 
it's really sad, but it's almost like they can't, they don't even do the math right. Like they're spending by eating right. chemically processed junk and adding crap into it, better terms, and then promoting it and putting it in our kids' diet in school. And then, of course, the long, short-term effects like focus, attention, you know, and then long-term chronic disease, hypertension, diabetes, cancers. There's a huge economic cost on that loss of productivity, loss in GDP, loss, 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 loss. You're getting a society that's becoming dumber. Um, don't they see, don't they, can't they put it together? Like, it's like you're shooting yourself in the foot. Like, you really are, it is the definition of insanity. It is, you're trying to save a buck to lose like a thousand. Like, it's, you kind of, it doesn't even make sense, but it happens every single day. And it's I know, it's, it's unbelievable. And, you know, one of the things as you're, as you're talking about these different issues that makes me also uh, recall is that when you look at our main commodity crops, whether we're talking about corn, mm -hmm. wheat, uh, soy, or rice, like 70% of all of that is actually fed to livestock. Yeah. It doesn't even go to it doesn't even go to humans. It goes to cows and pigs and chickens and turkeys and all these animals that we raise to then kill for their tissue. Mm. So it's like, my God, the insanity of this is we could be so much healthier if we stop contributing all of these resources to raising animals for food. Just eat these plants. And we don't have to spend nearly as much on petroleum, on water, on our air, our soil. I mean, it takes, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but to raise something like a, you know, a steak, like to, to get that cow from, you know, a calf to then when she's old enough to be slaughtered for, for meat, it's some ridiculous amount of water that it takes just to, to get that one steak that you go to, you know, Ruth Chris restaurant or whatever yeah. and eat. I mean, it's a, it's a ridiculous amount of water that it takes to get that one steak. And so when I think of, you know, people talking today about scarcity and uh, sustainability and all these other things, not just related to our food and agriculture, but just in general, man, to me, one of these things where, I mean, especially again, with all due respect to anybody in the carnivore paleo keto side, mm -hmm. you know, you're talking about eating all this animal food that takes so much more uh, energetic input to get that meat on the other side compared to raising the same amount of calories or energy in, you know, again, rice, corn, potatoes, you, you know, just pick your crop of choice. I mean, it's, it doesn't even compare. There's no comparison. And then people will say, yeah, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to the local, I know Mr. Smith over here, he's a farmer and I get my I, I get my cow from Mr. Smith. Okay, well, that's good. I'm proud that you can do that, but you're probably one out of a million people who, you know, actually do it that way. Everybody else is going to Kroger or Safeway or Winn-Dixie or whatever, Whole Foods and buying their meat from the grocery store. You're not getting it from your local neighbor down the street who happens to raise cattle for you. 100%. I, I completely agree. Most people are not getting it in a mom and pop. They're getting it from no. mass-produced chicken and not even a coop like it's yeah i i hear you i hear you you know um there's a second part that i really want to talk about we talked to mentioned it earlier this whole polysaccharide thing okay yes i know you do a lot of research on it which is amazing and it's not really talked about in school or who will talk about it so can you share with our listeners not who are not necessarily scientists what exactly is a polysaccharide and why they need to pay attention yes i'd love to so in addition to talking about plant-based nutrition polysaccharides are definitely probably my 1a 1b topic to discuss and as you mentioned i've done a lot of research on polysaccharides 
I could have said to you, Dr. Mitchell, sugars are good for you, but you know, maybe you and your listeners would think, wow, this dude's, he's a lunatic. He's crazy. Who in the world thinks sugar is good for you? But as you well know, as a physician, a sugar is not a sugar is not a sugar. So mother nature provides us with lots of different sugars. It depends on their chemical bonds and their, and their particles or not their particle size, but their chemical size. And so the particular polysaccharides that my colleagues and I have looked at come from aloe vera and rice. And so We've shown time after time how beneficial these polysaccharides are. We mostly look in, in the majority of our research, we've mostly looked at it from the immune system function perspective, whether it's lowering inflammation, uh, modulating certain, um, say for example, CD4, CD8, um, natural killer cells, uh, improving the overall, let's just call it the overall immune function uh, network, if you will, increasing adult stem cell production. We actually have just submitted a paper not too long ago. I, I won't really discuss it because it's still not published yet, but looking at the Th1 and Th2 components of the immune system and how our polysaccharide formula helps to rebalance that. So as you well know, the immune system crosstalk, it's crosstalk with all the other major organs is so important. It's not just for our main line of defense, it's actually for helping keep everything else in balance. And so if our immune system is not surveillant and modulated and functioning properly, we can't really expect our our cardiovascular system, our central nervous system, we can't expect all these other organs to be functioning as optimally as they could. So in a lot of our research, we've looked at putting people on these polysaccharides, which, oh, by the way, it's very, very difficult to get them in a therapeutic amount for food, from food. I know no one who eats aloe vera. I mean, no, I, I no, would love you. to eat aloe vera. <laughs> I think it tastes like crap. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, uh, aloe vera is 99% water. Most of the world prefers to eat white rice. So they, you know, stripped off the rice bran from the kernel. And the rice bran goes to feed their cows and their chick chickens and their pigs. And then meanwhile, they're eating the white, the white rice that's basically just simple sugar. So it's not, it doesn't have the goodies in it where the, the rice bran does. And so it's really fascinating when you combine those two together, you put them into the diet and they're literally utilized by all 30 plus trillion cells in our body. I mean, I have just seen these things not only in our clinical trials, but just in individuals that I've worked with over many years now where you provide these polysaccharides into the diet. And we, as you know, we have this inherent intelligence that I don't think we can really ever truly explain. Maybe at some point in our history, if we live long enough, we will. Yes. But this spark of life that we have as human beings, you know, it's, it's this intelligence that we have to take that nutrition, that information, and then turn that into something. And so many people much smarter than me have been looking at how these polysaccharides are so crucial to say, for example, creating a glycoprotein or a proteolipid or when cells talk to each other, they need these polysaccharides in certain sequences between the endoplasmic reticulum and the Golgi, which are organelles within every cell. It's just really fascinating how these polysaccharides are utilized in that whole, let's call it the bioengineering of life process. Yeah. And it just makes us function the way we're supposed to function. And it doesn't matter if you, you know, believe in creation or evolution or both or, you know, whatever your faith is. Yeah. But we know that our cells utilize these things just like they utilize oxygen, vitamins, minerals, all these other amazing things that we need from our from our food primarily. But because these polysaccharides are virtually unheard of and, and unknown in the modern diet, even a hundred years ago, nobody still was eating aloe vera. I mean, anytime I mention aloe vera, most people think of it as something for either a cut or a sunburn, right? You don't even exactly. think of taking it oral. No, no. So, but, and, and that's certainly a fine use for it. If you have that, you put it on your skin and it will help to heal it, certainly. But 
The real magic of it occurs when you put that in your mouth in a concentrated form, like what we've done in our clinical trials. And it's just been amazing. I mean, for example, just quickly in the Alzheimer's study, we looked at people with moderate to severe uh, severity of disease. These were folks that were on average 79.9 years of age, had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's for at least one year on average, about three. And over a 12 month period at nine and 12 months, we showed clinically and statistically significant improvements in cognitive function. Wow, I mean, that's, that's unheard of. That's also, unheard of. That's unheard of, honestly. So how does one get a hold, like their hands on these polysaccharides? Like where, how? Well, so if you don't mind me doing a little self-promotion. Um, go uh, ahead. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I left academics full-time six years ago after making some of these discoveries. I still have, a, as you mentioned, a voluntary appointment, but in starting Dr. Lewis Nutrition, I created this product called Daily Brain Care that we use that is supported by all this clinical trial work that we did prior to that. So anyone can go to my website, drlewisnutrition.com. We have dailybraincare.com. Daily Brain Care is our flagship product. That's the the real, you know, um, I would say gold medal winner, if you will, of, of the work that I've done over my career so far. I, I still have other things that I'm hoping to do as, as the funds permit, but uh, daily brain care is really the genesis or not, it, actually I shouldn't say it that way, it's not the genesis, it's the output or the outcome of what all this work was, uh, you know, that was performed at the university that now people can, uh, can benefit from that again is a concentrated source, not just of aloe vera and the rice bran, I have other ingredients in there as well, but Using the uh, the analogy of the shotgun approach of nutrition compared to the sniper rifle sniper rifle approach of pharmacology, where we're providing the body the cells with all these different nutrients and phytonutrients simultaneously, in addition to the polysaccharides, and that's why Dr. Mitchell, I think daily brain care works so well is because we're providing these materials that the cells need that ultimately are guided by the genes to be able to instruct the cells and what to do to function for us to function properly. That is amazing. I'm going to get some information. I'm going to make sure we have your links at the bottom because okay. I want to continue this conversation. And I know I didn't ask you about putting you on a spot. I want to talk about polysaccharides and brain health. Okay. okay. So I'm all about high performance. And I feel like I can't do the conversation do service in this episode. So no pressure. I want to get you back on the show. Sure. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I, love, I, I love our connection. I love our energy. So you can have me on as many times as you want. Awesome. So listeners, appreciate you. Remember the, the myths we talked about with nutrition. Remember, we don't have to eat animals as much as, and that'll be true. I do enjoy animals. I enjoy my sea. <laughs> not gonna lie to you, but I I also know that I appreciate my fresh vegetables, my garden vegetables, and I, I appreciate exercise. So that is important. See, we can all, even those who imbibe a little of meat and those who are pure <laughs> vegetarian, can get along just fine. It's all That's about right. looking at Absolutely. the picture. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, everyone. Again, um, Dr. Lewis, thank you so much for being here. We are going to have another session on the polysaccharides in the near future. Beautiful. So we'll keep that in mind. Now, listeners, thanks again. This is your host, Dr. Mitchell, on the Mental Health and Wellness Show.